Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Plato's Republic, Book 5, Part 2 Can we say, then, that we've escaped one wave of criticism in our discussion of the law about women, that we haven't been altogether swept away by laying it down that male and female guardians must share their entire way of life, and that our argument is consistent when it states that it is both possible and beneficial. And it's certainly no small wave that you've escaped. You won't think that it's so big when you get a look at the next one. Tell me about it, and I'll decide. I suppose that the following law goes along with the last one and the others that preceded it. Which one? That all these women are to belong in common to all the men, that none are to live privately with any man, and that the children, too, are to be possessed in common, so that no parent will know his own offspring or any child his parent. This wave is far bigger than the other, for there's doubt both about its possibility and about whether or not it's beneficial. I don't think that its being beneficial would be disputed, or that it would be denied that the common possession of women and children would be the greatest good, if indeed it is possible. But I think that there would be a lot of disagreement about whether or not it is possible. There could very well be dispute about both. You mean that I'll have to face a coalition of arguments. I thought I'd escape one of them, if you believed that the proposal was beneficial, and that I'd have only the one about whether or not it's possible left to deal with. But you didn't escape unobserved so you have to give an argument for both. Well, then, I'll have to accept my punishment. But do me this favor. Let me, as if on a holiday, do what lazy people do who feast on their own thoughts when out for a solitary walk. Instead of finding out how something they desire might actually come about, these people pass that over, so as to avoid tiring deliberations about what's possible and what isn't. They assume that what they desire is available, and proceed to arrange the rest, taking pleasure in thinking through everything they'll do when they have what they want, thereby making their lazy souls even lazier. I'm getting soft myself at the moment, so I want to delay consideration of the feasibility of our proposal until later. With your permission, I'll assume that it's feasible, and examine how the rulers will arrange these matters when they come to pass and I'll try to show that nothing could be more beneficial to the city and its guardians than those arrangements. These are the things I'll examine with you first, and I'll deal with the other question later, but only if you'll permit me to do it in this way. You have my permission, so carry on with your examination. I suppose that our rulers and auxiliaries, if indeed they're worthy of the names, will be willing to command and to obey respectively. In some cases, the rulers will themselves be obeying our laws, and in others, namely, the ones we leave to their discretion, they'll give directions that are in the spirit of our laws. Probably so. Then you, as their lawgiver, will select women just as you did men, with natures as similar to theirs as possible, and hand them over to the men. And, since they have common dwellings and meals, rather than private ones, and live together and mix together both in physical training and in the rest of their upbringing, they will, I suppose, be driven by innate necessity 
to have sex with one another? Or don't you think we're talking about necessities here? The necessities aren't geometrical, but erotic, and they're probably better than the others at persuading and compelling the majority of people. That's right. But the next point, Glaucon, is that promiscuity is impious in a city of happy people, and the rulers won't allow it. No, for it isn't right. Then it's clear that our next task must be to make marriage as sacred as possible, and the sacred marriages will be those that are the most beneficial. Absolutely. How, then, will they be most beneficial? Tell me this, Glaucon. I see that you have hunting dogs and quite a flock of noble fighting birds at home. Have you noticed anything about their mating and breeding? Like what? In the first place, although they're all noble, aren't there some that are the best and prove themselves to be so? There are. Do you breed them all alike, or do you try to breed from the best as much as possible? I try to breed from the best. And do you breed from the youngest or the oldest, or from those in their prime? From those in their prime. And do you think that if they weren't bred in this way, your stock of birds and dogs would get much worse? I do. What about horses and other animals? Are things any different with them? It would be strange if they were. Dear me, if this also holds true of human beings, our need for excellent rulers is indeed extreme. It does hold of them, but what of it? Because our rulers will then have to use a lot of drugs. And while an inferior doctor is adequate for people who are willing to follow a regimen and don't need drugs, when drugs are needed, we know that a bolder doctor is required. That's true. But what exactly do you have in mind? I mean that it looks as though our rulers will have to make considerable use of falsehood and deception for the benefit of those they rule. And we said that all such falsehoods are useful as a form of drug. And we were right. Well, it seems we were right, especially where marriages and the production of children are concerned. How so? It follows from our previous agreements, first, that the best men must have sex with the best women as frequently as possible, while the opposite is true of the most inferior men and women. And, second, that if our herd is to be of the highest possible quality, the former's offspring must be reared, but not the latter's. And this must all be brought about without being noticed by anyone except the rulers, so that our herd of guardians remains as free from dissension as possible. Well, that's absolutely right. Therefore, certain festivals and sacrifices will be established by law at which we'll bring the brides and grooms together, and we'll direct our poets to compose appropriate hymns for the marriages that take place. We'll leave the number of marriages for the rulers to decide, but their aim will be to keep the number of males as stable as they can, taking into account war, disease, and similar factors, so that the city will, as far as possible, become neither too big nor too small. That's right. Then there will have to be some sophisticated lotteries introduced, so that at each marriage the inferior people we mentioned will blame luck rather than the rulers when they aren't chosen their will. And among other prizes and rewards, the young men who are good in war, or other things, must be given permission to have sex with the women more often, since this will also be a good pretext for having them father as many of the children as possible. That's right. And then, as the children are born, they'll be taken over by the officials appointed for the purpose, who may be either men or women, or both, 
since our offices are open to both sexes. Yes. I think they'll take the children of good parents to the nurses in charge of the rearing pen, situated in a separate part of the city. But the children of inferior parents, or any child of the others that is born defective, they'll hide in a secret and unknown place, as is appropriate. It is, if indeed the guardian breed is to remain pure. And won't the nurses also see to it that the mothers are brought to the rearing pen when their breasts have milk, taking every precaution to ensure that no mother knows her own child, and providing wet nurses if the mother's milk is insufficient? And won't they take care that the mothers suckle the children for only a reasonable amount of time, and that the care of sleepless children and all other such troublesome duties are taken over by the wet nurses and other attendants? You're making it very easy for the wives of the guardians to have children, and that's only proper. So let's take up the next thing we proposed. We said that the children's parents should be in their prime. True. Do you share the view that a woman's prime lasts about 20 years, and a man's about 30? Which years are those? A woman is to bear children for the city from the age of 20 to the age of 40. A man from the time that he passes his peak as a runner until he reaches 55. At any rate, that's the physical and mental prime for both. Then, if a man who is younger or older than that engages in reproduction for the community, we'll say that his offense is neither pious nor just, for the child he begets for the city, if it remains hidden, will be born in darkness, through a dangerous weakness of will, and without the benefit of the sacrifices and prayers offered at every marriage festival, in which the priests and priestesses, together with the entire city, ask that the children of good and beneficial parents may always prove themselves still better and more beneficial. That's right. The same law will apply if a man still of begetting years has a child with a woman of childbearing age without the sanction of the rulers. We'll say that he brings to the city an illegitimate, unauthorized, and unhallowed child. That's absolutely right. However, I think that when women and men have passed the age of having children, We'll leave them free to have sex with whomever they wish, with these exceptions. For a man, his daughter, his mother, his daughter's children, and his mother's ancestors. For a woman, her son and his descendants, her father and his ancestors. Having received these instructions, they should be very careful not to let a single fetus see the light of day, but if one is conceived and forces its way to the light, they must deal with it in the knowledge that no nurture is available for it. That's certainly sensible. But how will they recognize their fathers and daughters and the others you mentioned? They have no way of knowing. But a man will call all the children born in the tenth or seventh month after he became a bridegroom his sons, if they're male, and his daughters, if they're female, and they'll call him father. He'll call their children his grandchildren, and they'll call the group to which he belongs grandfathers and grandmothers. And those who were born at the same time as their mothers and fathers were having children, they'll call their brothers and sisters. Thus, as we were saying, the relevant groups will avoid sexual relations with each other. But the law will allow brothers and sisters to have sex with one another if the lottery works out that way and the Pythia approves. That's absolutely right. This then, Glaucon, is how the guardians of your city have their wives and children in common. We must now confirm that this arrangement is both consistent with the rest of the Constitution and by far the best, or how else are we to proceed in just that way? Then isn't the first step towards agreement 
to ask ourselves what we say is the greatest good in designing the city, the good at which the legislator aims in making the laws, and what is the greatest evil. And isn't the next step to examine whether the system we've just described fits into the tracks of the good and not into those of the bad? Absolutely. Is there any greater evil we can mention for a city than that which tears it apart and makes it many instead of one? Or any greater good than that which binds it together and makes it one? There isn't. And when, as far as possible, all the citizens rejoice and are pained by the same successes and failures, doesn't this sharing of pleasures and pains bind the city together? It most certainly does. But when some suffer greatly, while others rejoice greatly at the same things happening to the city or its people, doesn't this privatization of pleasures and pains dissolve the city? Of course. And isn't that what happens whenever such words as mine and not mine aren't used in unison? And similarly with someone else's? Precisely. Then is the best governed city the one in which most people say mine and not mine about the same things in the same way? It is, indeed. What about the city that is most like a single person? For example, when one of us hurts his finger, the entire organism that binds body and soul together into a single system under the ruling part within it is aware of this, and the whole feels the pain together with the part that suffers. That's why we say that the man has a pain in his finger. And the same can be said about any part of a man, with regard either to the pain it suffers or to the pleasures it experiences when it finds relief. Certainly. And as for your question, the city with the best government is most like such a person. Then, whenever anything good or bad happens to a single one of its citizens, such a city above all others will say that the affected part is its own, and will share in the pleasure or pain as a whole. If it has good laws, that must be so. It's time now to return to our own city to look there for the features we've agreed on, and to determine whether it or some other city possesses them to the greatest degree. Then that's what we must do. What about these other cities? Aren't there rulers and people in them as well as in ours? There are. Besides fellow citizens, what do the people call the rulers in those other cities? In many they call them despots, but in democracies they are called just this, rulers. What about the people in our city? Besides fellow citizens, what do they call their rulers? Preservers and auxiliaries. And what do they in turn call the people? Providers of upkeep and wages. What do the rulers call the people in other cities? Slaves. And what do the rulers call each other? Co-rulers. And ours? Co-guardians. Can you tell me whether a ruler in those other cities could address some of his co-rulers as his kinsmen? and others as outsiders? Yes, many could. And doesn't he consider his kinsmen to be his own? And doesn't he address them as such, while he considers the outsider not to be his own? He does. What about your guardians? Could any of them consider a co-guardian as an outsider, or address him as such? There's no way he could, for when he meets any one of them, he'll hold that he's meeting a brother or sister, a father or mother, a son or daughter, or some ancestor or descendant of theirs. You put that very well, but tell me this. Will your laws require them simply to use these kinship names, or also to do all the things that go along with the names? Must they show to their fathers 
the respect, solicitude, and obedience we show to our parents by law? Won't they fare worse at the hands of gods and humans, as people whose actions are neither pious nor just, if they do otherwise? Will these be the oracular sayings they hear from all the citizens from their childhood on, or will they hear something else about their fathers, or the ones they're told are their fathers, and other relatives? The former. It would be absurd if they only mouthed kinship names without doing the things that go along with them. Therefore, in our city more than in any other, they'll speak in unison the words we mentioned a moment ago. When any one of them is doing well or badly, they'll say that mine is doing well, or that mine is doing badly. Well, that's absolutely true. Now, didn't we say that the having and expressing of this conviction is closely followed by the having of pleasures and pains in common? Yes, and we were right. Then won't our citizens, more than any others, have the same thing in common, the one they call mine? And having that in common, won't they, more than any others, have common pleasures and pains? Of course. And in addition to the other institutions, the cause of this is the having of wives and children in common by the guardians. That, more than anything else, is the cause. But we agreed that the having of pains and pleasures in common is the greatest good for a city. And we characterized a well-governed city in terms of the body's reaction to pain or pleasure in any one of its parts. And we were right to agree. Then the cause of the greatest good for our city has been shown to be the having of wives and children in common by the auxiliaries. It has. And of course, this is consistent with what we said before. For we said somewhere that, if they're going to be guardians, they mustn't have private houses, property, or possessions, but must receive their upkeep from the other citizens as a wage for their guardianship and enjoy it in common. That's right. Then isn't it true, just as I claim, that what we are saying now, taken together with what we said before, makes even better guardians out of them, and prevents them from tearing the city apart by not calling the same thing mine? If different people apply the term to different things, one would drag into his own house whatever he could separate from the others, and another would drag things into a different house to a different wife and children, and this would make for private pleasures and pains at private things. But our people, on the other hand, will think of the same things as their own, aim at the same goal, and, as far as possible, feel pleasure and pain in unison. Precisely. And what about lawsuits and mutual accusations? Won't they pretty well disappear from among them? Because they have everything in common except their own bodies. Hence, they'll be spared all the dissension that arises between people because of the possession of money, children, and families. They'll necessarily be spared it. Nor could any lawsuits for insult or injury justly occur among them. For we'll declare that it's a fine and just thing for people to defend themselves against others of the same age, since this will compel them to stay in good physical shape. That's right. This law is also correct for another reason. If a spirited person vents his anger in this way, it will be less likely to lead him into more serious disputes. Certainly. But an older person will be authorized to rule and punish all the younger ones. Clearly. And surely it's also obvious that a younger person won't strike or do any sort of violence to an older one, or fail to show him respect in other ways, unless the rulers command it. For there are two guardians sufficient to prevent him from doing such things, shame and fear. 
Shame will prevent him from laying a hand on his parents, and so will the fear that the others would come to the aid of the victim, some as his sons, some as his brothers, and some as his fathers. That's the effect they'll have. Then, in all cases, won't the laws induce men to live at peace with one another? Very much so. And if there's no discord among the guardians, there's no danger that the rest of the city will break into civil war, either with them or among themselves. Certainly not. I hesitate to mention, since they're so unseemly, the pettiest of the evils the guardians would therefore escape. The poor man's flattery of the rich, the perplexities and sufferings involved in bringing up children and in making the money necessary to feed the household, getting into debt, paying it off, and in some way or other providing enough money to hand over to their wives and household slaves to manage. All of the various troubles men endure in these matters are obvious, ignoble, and not worth discussing. They're obvious even to the blind. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>